Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Let's please give a warm round of applause to one of my very favorite authors, Cecil Castellucci. I just like saying the word outer space like over and over and over again because uh, space is so cool. And I think that, um, you know, I fell in love with stories when I saw Star Wars and I fell in love with stories when I started reading science fiction uh, for reals. So um, so it's really a thrill to like have my, I mean, I've done some short stories that are science fiction, but um, it's, it's really a thrill to have my first bona fide science fiction novel out. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, to celebrate that. Um, okay, so uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to read a little bit, and then we'll have Steve come up, and we'll do I'll do a little Q and A with him, and then and then we'll open it up um, to you guys, and so you can ask me questions or you can ask um, Steve questions, and um, and uh, 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 you know um, hopefully we'll have a very interesting conversation, and I think there are some other specialists here and uh, that can uh, that can weigh in if uh, if we don't have all the answers, but you can also ask about the book. <laughs> Um, okay, so all you really need, I'm going to start from the beginning, um, and all you really need to know is that uh, uh, before I start here, um, that Tula Bain, who is the main character of the book, she uh, saw, she's on a space station, she's a human colonist, and um, her, uh, she saw some grains that is for their, um, they've made a pit stop at this space station, and she's seen some grains and, um, you know, uh, supplies for their colony on on the on the docks, and uh, they're supposed to be on the ship. And she's a little concerned about that, and she kind of spoke up, and that was not uh, taken very well by their leader, Brother Blue. Um, so he says, uh, "I need you to go to the dark. Uh, I need you to go to the Brahar ship on Docking Bay Five and make a delivery. But I want to help here." I said, "With the load in, the errand would take me away from the pre-boarding preparations. Do as I ask, Tula." Brother Blue said, and then he flashed that smile—the one that made you feel as though you were the only person in the universe. How could I have ever doubted that Brother Blue knew what he was doing? There are plenty of strong bodies to load, Brother Blue assured me. I had no choice but to obey his wishes as we set about for our final preparations. I took a bag heavy with fresh food, salts, and water from Earth to the docking bay with the Brahar ship and gave the bag to the captain. Its value was great, and I tried to ignore the desperate aliens who were begging for work near his ship. Tell him that she's fueled and ready to go, the captain said. I made my way back to join Brother Blue, my family, and the other colonists before reboarding commenced for the final leg of the Prairie Roses voyage. I felt relieved to see that the docking bay had been cleared, the error had been corrected. I needn't have worried after all. I look, took a look around the hangar. We were nearly ready to go. I delivered the message to Brother Blue, who seemed to understand it, and he smiled at me and touched my face. Tula, for one so young, you've been such a help to me on this voyage, Brother Blue said, coming up to me as I stood with my mother and my sister, Biddy. Thank you, Brother Blue, I said, for the opportunity to be of service. We're very proud of her, my mother chimed in. Come with me, Tula, I have something for you, he said. A gift. A gift, I said. Good work must be rewarded. I looked at my mother and sister. They were nervous. My mother did not like space travel, although it was she who had decided to move the family off of Earth. Biddy was three years younger than I was and f was frightened of everything. I'd rather stay here with my mother and sister, I said. I insist, Brother Blue said. It's all right, Mother said. Her pride was showing as the others took notice of the special attention Brother Blue was giving me. She nudged me forward. The higher I rose, the better it would be for all of us. We'll be fine without you for a little while. 
I followed Brother Blue to the hangar's anteroom, and there, stacked in the corner, were the bins of grain. They're still not on board, I said. Surely this time he would explain to me why they were not on the ship. You held such promise, Tula, but you have eyes that see in the dark, Brother Blue said. It's such a disappointment that you had to exhibit this independent streak so late in the game. If I'd seen it earlier, I'd never have taken you under my wing. I don't understand, I said. But instead of answering, it was then that he punched me in the face. Why? I tried to ask, my mouth filling with blood. He hit me again, and now I was too stunned to scream, and he did not stop until I was limp. And at some point, my air mask was knocked off, and the atmosphere of the space station struck me as though it were another blow. It was only when he thought that I was dead that he moved away from me into the hangar where the colonists were gathered, leaving me behind the forgotten cargo bins full of grain that had so concerned me. I wanted to groan, but my lungs ached. I wanted my mother, but I could not call out. I wanted to promise Brother Blue that I would not question his wisdom or mention the cargo bins ever again, but I knew better than to let on that he had not finished the job. I strained my ears to listen as he gave a speech to his followers. Brothers and sisters of Earth, you are an incredible... Incredible journey. I envy you as you set out to your new home. Circumstances have forced me to change my plan. I must deal with politics and data work that the League of Worlds requires. He explained that he would instead be heading to Bessin, a moon which served as the capital of the League of Worlds, to consult with the five major species and the other minor species members about new planets that the children of Earth were bidding for. He would then go back to Earth. He informed the colonists that he had bought a small ship and would leave immediately after the Prairie Rose left. I listened to more of his speech, but he did not mention rendezvousing with the colonists on Beta Grenade at a later date. That was a significant change in plan. Brother Blue always went with the colonists all the way to the planet for first landing day. Only when the first season was through and the colony was deemed as thriving would he go back to work to handle the coordinating and recruiting of the next batch of colonists. There was a collective moan of fear from the colonists. Brother Blue had promised he'd be there with us every step of the way. He had so often told us that he was the only one who could protect us on our journey from the perils of space, from aliens, from the humans left over from the generational ships who'd set out for the stars in the past, settled nowhere and wandered and roamed. They had grown too wild to join the children of Earth colonies, and they were not welcome back on Earth. I wanted to stand up, but I could not move. And if I did, I was afraid that he would finish me off. Cowardice kept me quiet. He continued, hushing them like a soothing father. I know, I know. It's disappointing to me as well. But you are the true pioneers. I am envious of your adventure. The first days on a new planet full of hope and possibility is my favorite part of the mission to settle the world that we aim to call home. I will think of you as the prairie rose heads to its new planet and wish you speed and light as you begin to grow and build and make your new home. Although EarthGov does not appreciate it yet, you are doing a great thing for humanity. And when times get tough, as we already see they can by our unscheduled stop here, remember that what you do, your courage, your strength, your perseverance will always be remembered. There was applause. Then I listened as the colonists began to board the Prairie Rose. Brother Blue was likely standing at the entrance to the ship, and I could hear him as he shook hands with every one of the colonists and wished them luck. Surely my family had noticed by now that I was gone and missing. I shifted my body and watched as best I could from behind the crates as my fellow earthling colonists filed past the anteroom that hid me. They walked in order as they had been taught. They walked with their heads down as they had been taught. What I had long suspected was true. We only saw what we were told to see. But now I was seeing something else. Brother Blue was like a magician I had seen once when I was young, distracting the eye from what he was really doing. I thought back to all of the times that he'd confided in me and realized that they were all tactics to keep me from asking questions. I'd been fooled. The grain had been the last in a long line of things that had bothered me somehow. His words always told a different story, a soothing story, a logical explanation for things that didn't add up. All along, I'd known deep down inside that something was not quite right, but I'd been blinded by my desire for a position in the future of the children of Earth. I'd been kept in place by not wanting to rock the boat. I would not make that mistake again. Through 
Though blurry, I watched as Brother Blue approached my mother and sister and heard him say, Tula will be traveling with me, Mrs. Bain. She's too valuable a right-hand man for me to give her up now. Yes, Brother Blue, my mother said. We're so happy for her prospects. Oh, she'll rise high under my tutelage. And there it was. No one would suspect that it could be otherwise. My family would never know or have cause to believe that he would lie. Brother Blue stayed until the last colonist was on board. He stayed until the docking door swung and clicked shut with a hiss of air. He waited until the sound of the ship unclamping from the station came. Only then did he walk away. And from where I lay, I could see that he did not look disturbed that he had just broken his word to 167 colonists in his care. He looked relieved. And then he was gone. No one would care about a dead body on the docking bay. I'd seen plenty of them. They were robbed and then disposed of by the rabble of aliens who looked for work on the few ships that docked. But I was not dead yet. I tried to adjust my weight to get, make some of the pain stop and then dragged myself out of the anteroom into the hangar as though I could somehow catch up with the ship before it left the station. But it was too late. They were gone. What was I to do now? My eyes caught sight of the prairie rose as it sailed by the window in the hangar. It moved so slowly that at first it didn't seem as though it were leaving at all. It was only when it began to shrink in size against the blackness of space that I was sure that it was leaving me behind. The prairie rose sailed on its edge, looking like a thin silver line. When it reached acceleration, it flipped up, ready to slingshot around the nearby depleted planet below and shoot out of the system in a light skip. It was a sight to see. The ship had five shiny points, its metal glinting in the glare of the weak sun. It looked like a tin star, the kind that I had seen in history books, the kind that officers of the law wore. I managed to lift my hand as though to touch the ship before it vanished from sight. Then the ship was gone, and so was my family. They had left me here on the floor of the Yurtina Foray space station. That knowledge that I was utterly alone felt sharper than the beating. It made the pain in my body unbearable. Everything, the hangar, the window, and the ship's fading streak of silver went black. Okay, so um, so thanks so much. Um, so that's chapter one. Uh, you know, clearly she's alone, and uh, some some stuff is going to happen. <laughs> There's a lot of aliens and not any humans. Um, uh, but let's talk about uh, humans in space first, and our exploration of our solar system and our our aim towards uh, other points beyond. Um, please. Uh, help me welcome Steve Collins. Steve Collins is an attitude control engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Most recently, Crew's ACS systems engineer for the Mars Curiosity rover. Steve has worked on numerous NASA JPL missions, including Epoxy, Dawn, Deep Impact, Mer, Deep Space One, Galileo, and Mars Observer. In flight, Steve's job includes keeping the spacecraft pointed in the right direction, performing trajectory corrections, and figuring out what the heck just happened. Um, when he's not, oh, I, the rest of it is cut. But when he's not flying robotic spacecraft, he uh, acts in the Caltech theater um, uh, department. He's in a great band called Artichoke. And uh, I think you race cars or something. You do some rate car racing. He's just basically the coolest guy on this planet and probably every other planet. So please welcome Steve Collins. So you sit over here. There's aliens. Here. I know. <laughs> over there and I will sit over here. Okay, so um First, I wanted to uh, I wanted to have Steve come because um, you know I think as science fiction writers and I know that there are some uh, some fiction and science fiction writers here in the audience um, we get inspired because uh, we look up and we're inspired by landing on the moon and 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 Voyager and like all these uh, things that uh, you know just space because it's the coolest um, and so I wanted to talk about. Um, sort of uh you know the the way in in in, in uh, you know the, what we're actually doing and sort of what we imagine that we can do um so i guess my first question is um i wanted to find out uh when did you decide to um get involved with uh space stuff um so <laughs> get involved with space stuff. Uh, I, w I have been fascinated with 
uh, space stuff since, you know, Gemini, Apollo era, you know, when I was six years old. Um, I'm not sure if that was innate or if it was my parents setting me down in the front of TV anytime there was a space thing on. Right. But I've always been fascinated with that stuff. And, um, and I... I sort of, as I went through school, tried to make choices that allowed, you know, the possibility to be an astronaut someday or be involved in the space right. program. So, so I studied physics and math and stuff like that, uh, you know. And in college, the same sort of deal. I got, I got a degree in physics, um, and I kept auditioning for shows and getting <laughs> cast in things and going off and doing theater for a while, and then, like, catching up on my physics curriculum so see it's like we almost like had opposite things because I went to the high school performing arts where you know I you know we studied acting all day but like I would be like I should transfer to a military school so that I could become an astronaut one day or you know like I was uh, first of all like I think for me the moment was when um when I, I guess I was like eight or something and they launched Voyager Voyager and I was like I was like what? And like the whole, you know, the whole thing. I was just like, this just was really cool. And, and the fact that like we're still tracking it and it's still sending signals back and it's still, it's not even, it's kind of out almost yeah, out, it's just, you know, barely it's just barely out of the solar system, system is yeah. like, is like, I just feel like it's a, it's a part of me. And I think maybe a lot of people my age sort of feel like that because it's like, we kind of grew, it's, it's, yeah, you, you yeah. sort of, like your favorite TV show when you were a kid, yeah. you sort of um, take on, you you own right. some of these projects, yeah. you know, people that were just at the right age when when uh, yeah. Spirit and Opportunity landed, right, you know, exactly. feel a connection to those that's sort of special. Right, or, yeah, or the curiosity now, like, I'm sure, I'm sure there are some of the young people here who are like, whoa, what? You know, like, yeah. you know, and it's like, they're like, Voyager, who cares? Like, what yeah, is that? Yeah, that happened a long know? time before yeah. I was even born. What is it? But what I find really fascinating about um, something like uh, Voyager, I'm jumping around here, but it doesn't yep. matter Do because jump, it's just, everything is interesting, um, uh, is that uh, with Voyager, it's like that technology. I mean, it's like my phone is like. <laughs> Your phone totally kicks ass. Yeah. Compared to compared to Voyager, right? I mean, it's like yeah. it's like. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. I, yeah, I like a Commodore sixty four. I don't know if any of you remember more, what that is. Is, is like than, totally kicks ass on yeah. Voyager. Yeah. So it's like that's it's, like, it's so fascinating because it's like I think a lot of times like people don't like understand like with space books. Okay, just to bring it to fiction as well. It's like people are like 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 they they think that things can happen so fast, but it's like space is really big and it takes a long time. And it takes a long time so, to get places. Yeah. Um, I was always fascinated with the fact that like you guys have to keep some of the old technology around and working just so that you can communicate with the yeah. stuff that's farthest out. It, well, and and so because space is really difficult, um, typically the technology we build into a spacecraft is old technology, even right. on the day we launch it. Right, right. Like when we built, uh, uh, you know, Curiosity, the technology on it, the computers and stuff like that are kind of like 10 years or so behind what's in your cell phone or what's in your personal computer. Um, and, and we do that because we're super conservative. We want to use something that has a proven right. track record. We don't want to, you know, use the newest thing that they invented last year, you know, and try and launch that to Mars and, and uh, hope that it works. So it's old when we launch it. Right. Uh, and then if you use the same design, like I'm working on a project now to make, they said, build a NASA said, build another Curiosity. We'll put a different science payload on it, but use the same landing system, use the same, you know, suspension and, and uh, you know, mobility system and stuff, and we'll, you know, figure out what exactly we're going to put on for science instruments. We said, okay, we'll go try and build one, and we try to go to the companies that make the components for right. um, Curiosity, and they're like, oh, we don't make those anymore. <laughs> 
I mean, I guess we might have some parts back in the shed that we could build like two more. Was, is that enough? Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle yeah. to even just going back that far. Right. And that's not that far. Yeah, it's not yeah. that far. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like with Voyager, what I think is really fascinating, too, is that there's that sort of mix of analog and, uh, well, just analog, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. And um, I mean, like. You know, I mean, even, I mean, like, how, what kind, I mean, I don't know, you probably, maybe you know, but, like, it's like when you look at that golden record, and it's like, well, yes, aliens clearly will be able to build a, a record player. <laughs> like, But then that kind of makes sense, because it's like, at least you can kind of crudely do that. But it's like, what? Oh, I've got an idea. I know a way we could code pictures on a phonograph record. Yeah. And we'll send pictures that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically what they did. I yeah. don't know if you've ever seen all this stuff, but the, the voice interstellar record has sound on it but it also has a you know prime number square thing that lets you reconstruct a bunch of digital pictures from the data that's on the yeah, record and so cool. uh, yeah it's and, and uh, Carl Sagan you know uh, very carefully tried to design all the pieces for that and a group of other people um, so that Somebody that was kind of as smart as we are, you know, could look at it and there was only one way to put it together and th that they would have a shot at being able to figure out what it was. Right. I would not have a shot at being able to figure out what it was. I'd be like, I'm super excited. I want to figure it out, but I don't, I don't understand. You know, like, like one of the things is they included a picture of the spacecraft, right? Right, so right, that, right, right. So that you could, you said, well, I got the spacecraft. Oh, look, the picture. Hey, it that looks the, just the like the record. spacecraft. Right, right. It shows a little record yeah. on it. So you know, oh, that must be how you decode the picture. Right. Um, I, I, like, uh, uh, do do they put something on that on like every spacecraft that that they send out? Yeah, now now they tend there, there's lots of different things like that that are various kinds of you know objet d'art that right. go on the spacecraft. Curiosity has a sundial that has uh, that is a combination of a. Um, uh, a, a color wheel so that you can make sure the pictures are properly uh -huh. color uh, calibrated uh, and uh, and it also you can use it to figure out how the spacecraft is oriented and uh, Bill Nye told a story at a at an event I was at the other day that said his dad was always uh, infatuated with sundials uh -huh. and so that's one of the reasons that that Bill Nye and the Planetary Society you know pushed to have this sundial wow. uh, included on the thing and so there's and yeah. there's that, and, and there's typically some sort of a CD or something that has people's signatures right. uh, on them and stuff like that. See, that's so cool, because, I mean, it's like you don't know where it's going to... Where it's going to end yeah. up. You could start getting spam from Alpha Centauri. Yeah, that's right. You know, those buggers, whatever they are. That's it. So you never put your email address <laughs> on those things that are going outside Earth orbit. Um, what was the what was the first what was the first spacecraft that you had to attitude adjust for? Or can you explain what attitude adjustment is? So so almost all spacecraft have some sort of a system on them that keeps the the spacecraft oriented the right way. If you just took something and it was floating in zero g, it would just tumble kind of end over end at random. And so spacecraft typically have some sort of a system that that keeps them pointed in one direction. Like if you have solar panels that you're using to power your spacecraft, you want to point those at the sun. And so you, you know, you might spin the spacecraft so it's stable from the, from the uh, conservation magnetic momentum. Or you might have little thrusters on it that fire to keep it oriented the right way. Thrusters. Or you might have... <laughs> Or you, they have these things called reaction wheels, which are like a little weighted wheel, and you, if you spin the wheel one direction, it makes the spacecraft spin the other way. And so the stuff that I do is like the software and the hardware and keeping track of all the pieces that, uh, that do that. Figure out how the spacecraft is oriented by using star cameras or sensors that can sense the sun, and then these actuators, thrusters, or reaction wheels, or stuff like that, too. And what is a star camera? Is that something that sort of like, uh, it helps you sort of figure out where, 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 where what you're direction at. you're pointed yeah, in? Yeah, 
um, it, it, if you go out, if you could, you know, take a picture of the night sky and you saw the Big Dipper in it, you could go, oh, Big Dipper, uh, Polaris, oh, that's north. Right. And basically, we uh, have these instruments called a star sensor that, that do just that. They take a picture of the stars, and then they use a computer to recognize the constellation, the pattern of the stars, which is unique. You know, if you look at four or five stars, any place in the sky, it's unique. Um, and so we can figure out how the spacecraft is oriented using that. And so what was the first uh, What was the first spacecraft that you... Uh, that you um... So the first thing that I actually did operations on was uh, a GPS... I think it was a GPS spacecraft. Um, and uh, though, you know, this... GPS thing that tells your phone where you are so you can look up your traffic. Uh, the way that works is there's a constellation of, I forget now how many it is, you know, dozens of spacecraft that are in orbit around the Earth. Uh, not quite as high as this microphone. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I maybe and it's out. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, and uh, it's out, so we'll do that. <laughs> and we'll, um, so... Um, uh, not quite as high as where the uh, communication satellites are, you know, way up there at geosynchronous. But halfway up, there's this uh, constellation, a kind of a little sphere of these spacecraft that have navigation uh, transmitters on them. And they, oh, geez. Oh, well, that's why. Here, do you want? Do you want to eject? Eject. Okay, okay I bet that'll work now. Um, so. Um, so those things uh, send a little signal, your phone receives them, and it can listen to the signals from the different ones and figure out where you're at on the Earth. And so we launched a whole series of those, and I would go out when they launched them and make sure that the, uh, in the case of the GPS sense, the spacecraft, there's a sensor that can see the sun mm -hmm. on it, and we use that to, you know, fire a rocket engine to put the spacecraft in the right orbit. And right. so that was the first thing. Um, the first time that, uh, even though I did not know that I had already seen your work, uh, was that uh, I watched the deep impact. The, um, mm -hmm. not the, yeah, the, you know, so, uh, so basically uh, uh, the, they, they, they took a, a spaceship and they crashed it into a comet. And uh, uh, I'm obsessed with comets. I love comets. And so I was like, I'm watching that. And you can watch it on the internet. And, um, and so I watched that. And you, you helped with that, right? Yep. Yep, I was the keep the spacecraft pointed the right way, make the corrections to the trajectory. And then uh, smash and then, it. Yeah. Yeah. So we it actually had, there was the main spacecraft that had a bunch of cameras and science instruments on it. And then there was this little mini spacecraft that was, uh, boy, it's the size of a coffee table or something with a big piece of copper in it. And uh, it's sort of like a missile. It had thrusters on it and its own little navigation system. And it, uh, we, a few days before we flew by the comet, we sprung it off the bottom of the spacecraft and it, uh, and it like locked on to the comet and tried to hit the comet, which it successfully did. Yeah, I watched it. it and was uh, cool. it was the first time we really got to touch a comet because People don't, you know, we we have, there's probably five or six comet nuclei that we have close-up resolved pictures of. I mean, comets are so tiny, they're just a few kilometers across, so from the ground you can't really see what the nucleus looks like. Um, and so you have to fly spacecraft by them to, and get with close to them to get uh, high-res pictures. So there's only five or six comets that we have resolved images of. And this is the first time that we got to like poke it and see like, is it hard or is it soft or what? <laughs> because people don't know. It could be like a solid block of ice or it could be like fluffy powder, you know, powder snow or whatever. And uh, it turned out it was very fluffy and powder powdery, um, uh, not, I mean, we've, we learned this uh, over many of these flybys, uh, surprisingly the nucleus, even though it's made of ice, is black. It's, it's actually, a comet nucleus is blacker than you can make a flat black surface with spray paint. Um, wow. Because it's, you know, the ice gets boiled off and leaves the dust behind. That's amazing. Um, uh, what uh, what has been your f okay? I have so many questions, but like, is it is it more difficult to fly something that's closer to Earth or when it's going far away? So like, when you went to Mars, um, is that 
easier or more difficult than, let's say, a, a lady or gentleman who was like, uh, you know, piloting a space shuttle when the space shuttle was in orbit or in space? It's, it, you know, or how is it different? There's a lot of yeah. differences between a human space flight yeah. thing and something that's deep space. Right. I mean, the, the most, the first most obvious thing is something that's at Mars is at least like 20 minutes away right. in terms of if we send a command, yeah. it takes at the speed of light, the radio signals 20 minutes to get to the spacecraft to make it do something. So you couldn't, you know, have the pilot sit here on Earth like they fly a UAV and, you know, have them land on right. the surface of Mars in real time right. because it's a, you know, 40-minute round trip. They couldn't react fast enough. So that means that something that's going to land on Mars has to be robotically uh, autom uh, autonomous. You know, it has to be like it's going to land. The computers are all going to do it all. Um, you can put a pilot in a um, in a space shuttle, and she or he can land the thing on a runway right. or go fly up to a space station and creep up to it and right. make little corrections as they're flying up. Right, to because it. it's like in real time. It's in I real mean, time. Yeah, it's like yeah. right away. Yeah. Um, is uh, well, I mean, like you know, uh, like with my book, like you know, one of the one of the dreams in science fiction is to go to deep space. You know, that's that's like that's. That's yeah. the that's what we write about mostly. I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot of near near solar system science fiction as well, but um, or stories of astronauts and things like that that are you know Earth related or aliens coming here. But um, but there's also like a great tradition of sort of how do how do we get out? So um, uh, uh, first, I want to ask you what was your favorite spacecraft to fly? so far and second was there anything that you actually had to like was there any moment that you actually had to you know be like oh no b b b b that star is on the wrong side <laughs> or anything like that um i think of them as my children <laughs> they're all your favorites they're all my favorites <laughs> yeah. well yes. I'm a, they must all be slightly different and they're all they're all yeah. very very different yeah. um and uh on all of the spacecraft I've dealt with, they always surprise you and do weird things that you didn't expect and you don't understand why that's happening. And they occasionally, you know, don't send down a radio signal today mm -hmm. yeah. and you go like, uh, Mr. Spacecraft, where did <laughs> Hello. you go? Hello, wake up. <laughs> uh, you know, and usually it's the people that are running the radios and stuff like that said, oh yeah, we forgot to plug in the, we had, it's, it was us, don't worry. But, but sometimes it's not, sometimes there's a real problem. The spacecraft um, typically have self-protective mechanisms in them so that when something funny happens, the spacecraft will try and protect itself and the way it does that is it turn first it turns off your telemetry um, so and changes to a much uh, lower data rate and it does that so that no matter which way the spacecraft is pointed you can still talk to it a little bit and uh, and it will often reconfigure the spacecraft so it's not using your fancy star camera it's just using <laughs> this super simple one little chip solar cell thing to measure where the sun is, which is uh, less likely to have a, a failure than a complicated star camera that has computers and lots of comple complexity in it. Um, so yeah, so lots of crazy things happen. Yeah. Um, every spacecraft that I've dealt with is really a one-of-a-kind mm -hmm. thing. It's sort of like going to the uh, auto parts store and buying a, uh, a a wheel from one kind of a car and a starter motor from a different <laughs> kind of car and an engine block from something else and cobbling them together into right. a car and trying to drive that. I think I'll go to the tip of South America in this thing. <laughs> okay, see you guys later. And, you know, so you're going to have problems because you know it you know it's you never built one quite like one this wheel before. is bigger one wheel is bigger <laughs> and it's a little bit weird um how uh, like uh, how how do we get okay so we've got voyager that was he went out what 35 years 30 years ago 35 years ago yeah yeah a long time um a long time ago yeah. so long before the time before. Of be the beginning yeah. um before so, your puny so now sun that's burned the farthest thing the but it's it's the oldest it's the old it's not as sophisticated as what we said to mars right so how do we get out like how do we get faster how do we get 
You, do you know uh, what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm yeah, trying to yeah, say? Yeah, like, do, how do I we do. get faster? It's, it turns out faster is really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's things that are easy, like adding computer power is is comparatively easy. Right. It's a young, new technology. We've just invented these microprocessor chips, and and there's this thing called Moore's law, you know, which says that, you know, I forget what the number is now, but every 10 years the computing power goes up right, by a factor right. of 100 or something. Doubles every 18 months. Doubles every 18 months. Okay. There you go. That's Thank the, you, sir. The classic <laughs> statement of Moore's law. Um, that's not true of rocket engines. Rocket engines are ancient technology built by the Chinese and they're limited by thermodynamics and chemistry. And so making a better rocket engine is kind of a hard problem. And in order to go around the solar system fast, I mean, there's the speed at which we go around the solar system, like Voyager, right. or the, the, you know, it takes us seven or nine right. months to go to Mars. Mars. Yeah. That is... That is if we throw the rocket with the minimum, the smallest right. oomph that we can give it, it takes that long to right. get there. That's like I threw a baseball and it did a curving arc to right. home plate, right? How do you get a baseball from home plate to, to um, center field faster? Well, you have to throw it faster. Right. And then you need more power. And you need more power. Right. And you need a bigger rocket engine right. somehow. And you need to go there in a kind of an inefficient right. way. Right. Um, so it turns out going faster is hard until right. someone invents warp drive. I mean, right. that's why that's a staple of right. science fiction. Yeah. Or they invent some magical, to me as right. an engineer, uh, propulsion technology, ion drive right. that are huge, you know. Yeah, because I mean, like one of the problems when you're a science fiction writer is that there is no faster than light technology like you right. can't you can't you actually yeah so I mean so you know for example like the part that I read I mean I tried to sort of say when the when the prairie rose flips up to the side I'm interested in sort of solar sails and that's sort of what I imagine that you know it is although I'm sure I'm doing it totally wrong but I also know that sometimes you you can whip around a planet and get some speed from like you know from that that's so, a trick we use all the time yeah and I so mean, that's how Voyager, Voyager yeah. got slung and out of here that, by whipping around Jupiter. And even Ju uh, Ju Juno, right? That just whipped around Earth to go yep. go out there, yep. right? Yep. So, I mean, so one of the things that I tried to do in my book, even though I do a lot of it incorrectly, is like sort of get inspired by correct science, like, you know, sort of correct science, which is we actually do use planets to, to, to have acceleration or solar sails are something that, um, you know, NASA is thinking uh, I think they're gonna do one like in 2014 yeah. or 2015 there or they're already like yeah there there have been yeah. solar sail experiments and yeah. there's a lot of people working on you know how do I make a solar sail that'll fold up and go in a spacecraft this size right that's small enough that, that a solar sail could yeah. do a lot yeah so um but you know but until we have that faster than light technology I mean we're really limited about where how far we can go I mean like things take a long time Time. Yeah. Voyager is still sort of in the in the bubble of the solar system. Yeah. I, uh, so so uh, I I made the point that rocket technology is sort of a mature technology, and and there's some laws of physics there that kind of are blocking our yeah. fantasies. <laughs> um, but but we've been wrong about that before, right. right? I mean, if you'd ask H.G. Wells about, you know, is there going to be a planet-wide, you know, transport mechanism that has people flying around little metal tubes, he would have gone, eh, not right, so much. Right, right. You know, uh, that I, I don't see any way. I mean, that's that seemed fantastical. Oh, you'd have to invent materials right. that don't exist, and how what what could you propel this with? A steam engine could never go into the air. Um, so, you know, we've been wrong right. before about that stuff, and, and that's one of the great things that science fiction does, yeah. right? Is it sort of, it lets you imagine, like, what you want to do, right. and, and then how exactly it gets done kind of right. gets figured out at another level. Yeah. The analogy that I have for that is, like, I play soccer is yeah. one of the crazy hobbies that I have. <laughs> And when you get a corner kick, you know, somebody kicks the ball to you and you're trying to hit it with your head and knock it in the goal, um, the, you, you have to kind of 
believe that it's possible right. that that guy can get the ball <laughs> to your head your, to your head and and you have to believe that you can run to wherever the ball comes right and that you can hit it in such a way that it's going to go in the Good net goal, right and you you sort of hold that right that fa the fantasy of yeah. that in your head yeah. when you're getting a corner kick and if you don't do that there's no way you can ever yeah. do a corner kick but if you do do that then it's you totally know one possible. time out of ten yeah. you can actually do a yeah. corner kick your your body somehow magically figures out how to actualize the thing that you've envisioned in the fantasy yeah. and i think that happens on a much grander scale with science fiction yeah. and and technology you know somebody in a, you know writing a television show imagines these scanners that you can just go in and go Right. Oh, it looks like your arm is broken, and you and then know someone tries to make it. Well, yeah. yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. How could we do that? Yeah. I bet yeah. there's a way to do that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's I think it's really true. I think that that's one of the um, the sort of glorious things about sort of space travel. And I really, I mean, obviously, right now, I mean, I know, like when I was growing up, when they said Voyager, they're like, we're in the space age. But really now, I mean, it's like we've just like when I was growing up, we were just beginning to explore our solar system. You know, we hadn't really taken those great pictures of everything yet. And now we, you know, we we can see the 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 the, the steam jets come coming out of the moon of this planet and like, you know, like whoa, the, the, the chemistry of the, this ring or whatever. It's like, it's so, it's so incredibly uh, amazing that, I mean, right now we're really in like the space age, you know, because we're really exploring. Yeah. And there's a bunch of phases of it, right? There's the, there's the, I took pictures of it from, or there's the I looked at it yeah. with my tube yeah. that has two lenses that a guy right. in Italy polished for me, and I saw that, oh, Jupiter has some little dots that are going around it, right? right? That was step zero, right? right? Um, and then, you know, it became, now I can, I'm gonna, I can launch rockets, I can get them right. into Earth right. orbit. Oh, I can launch something and it'll go all the way right. to Mars. Step one, I'll fly by Mars and take pictures when I go by. Oh, then I'll go there and I'll go into right. orbit and stay there for a while and take pictures. Oh, then I'll go there and I'll maybe I can go from orbit and drop something down and have it right. land on the surface. Um, and then, oh, I'll take samples up and I'll am analyze them. And then I'll have a tea party there. I'm going to step right up here and cough. Oh, yeah, do it. Um, I, uh, I, 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 uh, I think that space is super cool, and um, and uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why I like science fiction so much. And as you can tell, I'm a big space geek, um, and I'm proud of that. Um, okay, so I think maybe I'll just open it up to questions now. Um, uh, if anybody has any questions for me or for Steve, Javi. I just have a question for Steve. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the components that go into the ships, and then some of them are being made and stuff like that, right? Are they all purpose-built for your ship, or have you had to repurpose something from some other object or some other device? And so, what would we be, be surprised to find in a spaceship? Um, the, uh, the tubes in the Curiosity Lander suspension were made for us by a company that makes graphite composite bicycle parts. So, <laughs> you know, they're not... Bi bicycle parts, but they're made by a company that specializes in making graphite fiber tubes and stuff. And they use the technology for bonding those into, like they bond a carbon fiber bicycle frame into the, you know, lugs and stuff. Um, there's lots of things like that, that, you know, where something that was designed for something else gets used uh, in the space. A lot of stuff is tailored for us just very specifically because we have very specific needs and um, have very thin margins, right? I mean, the spacecraft has to be as light as possible, use as little power as possible, be as reliable as possible, and all of those things fight each other, you know, vigorously during the design process to, to build the whole spacecraft. Yes, Clifford. Hi. Hi. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but I have a copy. So yes. you mentioned uh, uh, lots of aliens. So I was mm -hmm. curious, did you have fun designing aliens, and did you did you talk to uh, biologists or astrobiologists? I didn't talk to astrobiologists, but I'm really fond of taking Coursera classes right now, which is uh, massive online uh, college classes. And I actually took astrobiology from the University of Edinburgh with my mom. We took it together as like a, a little bonding thing. 
and um, and uh, obviously we're not they're not studying uh, aliens uh, you know that we're, we're meeting and stuff like that but sort of uh, thinking about sort of how you know uh, like wh what what is the origin of life what is our definition of life and all of that stuff so um, so you know that was just sort of to spark things and then I, I really wanted um, like for example, one of the things that I did was I made a base atmosphere on my space station. That's sort of a base atmosphere that, like, you know, the, the aliens could or couldn't breathe. Oh, um, that's great. But then they have, like, nanites in them that, um, that, uh, that regulate the gases in their lungs. So um, I really wanted all the aliens to be very, very different and to respect the fact that aliens will likely come from very different kinds of environments. Um, and so that was sort of a compromise, huh? And that's yeah. why she was wearing a mask. Exactly. That's why she's wearing a mask at the beginning and then and she like, gets, yeah, and then she, yeah, exactly. Good atmosphere Not for, for her. Yeah. yeah. And then she gets Excellent. nanites and then she can breathe. But that way it's like, cause I didn't want to have like a space station full of aliens wearing masks. Cause that's like, you can't see their cute faces, you know? So, um, so, you know, so it's like little things like that. So yeah, it was fun and I wanted to make them very alien. So Hecklek is one of the aliens. He's a hort, and uh, he's sort of like a insect, sort of insect looking. And that's sort of a big tradition in science fiction to have like a sort of insect kind of one. And then I have like a, you know, like a um, a, a guy who's, uh, um, you know, he's got like a, he's the most human looking in the sense that he's got the most human looking eyes. You know, everyone else is like, I don't even know where your eyeballs are. I'm just going to look at this area and like maybe that's what, you know, I'll look in your mouth. Maybe that's where I'm supposed to look. But um, because I wanted there also to like, and, and the conceit that I had with that guy was that like, Humans and um, lore uh, come. Uh, they're on the. They they have the same kind of sun, and so I just imagine that they that they you know sort of evolved in a in a similar way that the planet was in the same Goldilocks kind of uh, zone and stuff like that. So yes, it was totally fun, and I tried to make them very different. I, I sort of used to say like, oh, I didn't want to just slap an extra mouth on someone and make that an alien, but then I totally slapped an extra mouth on someone. So you know, it's a little bit of both. But, yes? Oh, that's a good question. Wow. Um, I'm trying to think of sci-fi. I mean, as a kid, I remember reading Dune and that being very influential. Um, not so much from a science fiction, you know, technology perspective. Um, I read a lot of astronaut biographies, which, you know, were, uh, were good. Recently, and th I don't, this is not, it's sort of science fiction to me. It feels like science fiction. I've been reading uh, the uh, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, Age of Sail, uh, Napoleonic, you know, sea vessel stuff, which, which oh, yeah. feels very familiar to me. Uh, you know, operating uh, when you're operating a spacecraft. It's sort of like going to sea, you know, and there's a captain and there's, you know, the crew has their different roles that they do and you go through these adventures and the ship breaks and you have to fix it and um, it, uh, it, 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 it became clear to me after reading those, oh, okay, Star Trek was based on Horatio Hornblower, which is set in kind of the same era. They're, they're in a big ship. They go to these various islands. They meet weird people on the islands. And, uh, and so that, that chain, I'm kind of traveling back the other direction through. It's so interesting because, like, I, you know, I just got this tour by the U.S. Navy. They do this thing for writers where they take, you know, writers on, like, to, you know, the submarines and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. just, just to see it. And I did it specifically because I was like, I think maybe this would be helpful for writing oh, science oh, fiction. Absolutely. You know, like, yeah, so, Operating yeah. On, on a submarine yeah. is like being on a spacecraft, Yeah, oh, right? totally. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. Um, yes, Sri? Uh, two questions. The first one is... So you talked about the light skip and the sort of slingshotting around the planet. I wonder if, if either of you would sort of explain how that actually works and doesn't send you back in time like it does. Second, personally, I'm terrified of space and the idea of like suffocation and claustrophobic and being able to take out is horrible. But 
both of you are earthbound, would you, given the chance, go into space? Oh. Um, so, uh, going into space, um, I, I, when I was much younger, it was yes, yes, yes. Uh, kind of, uh, as I got older, I was like, I have kids that I have to worry about. No, no, no. And now I'm sort of kind of getting back on the, yeah, if somebody came along and said, yeah, I'd be, you know, I'd be willing to take a risk of that. I mean, right now, the risk level for that is pretty high. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but boy, it would, it's such... So it would be such an experience. Um, the gravity slingshot thing. Uh, so, um, so imagine Jupiter going in its orbit around the sun. Uh, if if you thank you, uh, if you throw this uh, throw a spacecraft right behind Jupiter, just you know you you shoot it out away from the sun so that it goes right behind Jupiter after Jupiter's gone by. It'll bend the spacecraft's trajectory. Um, and it will slow Jupiter down a tiny little bit. And it will speed the spacecraft up a whole lot. It basically uses the ratio of the, the gravity interaction of the spacecraft and Jupiter, uses the ratio of the mass of Jupiter and the spacecraft to like do what you would do in a roller rink or in an ice rink where you are going in a circle and you pull somebody by you. And so you can steal a little energy from from Jupiter and give it to the spacecraft. And that's how all the gravity slingshot stuff that we do works. I would go into space. If you guys buy a lot of books, then I can buy a Virgin Galactic ticket. <laughs> so spread the word. I'm ready. Um, yeah, I'd be totally terrified, and I would probably have a heart attack on my way up there, but I'd still go. The, uh, let me just touch the time thing. There may be some general relativity thing that if you do that, it like slows your clock down a little bit. I mean, there's... You're slowing down the planet. Yeah. Slightly. Does that affect you on the well, if you did it with something the size of Mars, it would. But, you know, we're not... The, the amount that we affect Jupiter's orbit, like I say, it's the ratio of Jupiter's mass to the spacecraft mass, and things much bigger than our spacecraft fly by Jupiter at random all the time anyway. So, so there's that much chaos already intrinsic in the solar system. So it, I, I don't feel like that's an environmental crime, <laughs> if that's what you mean. I mean, it could be. It's a, it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask. Is that, are we messing up the solar system by using gravity assists, right? Um, you know? Uh, yeah, maybe, but you know, that, that some, you know, asteroid flew by behind Jupiter the next month, you know, we, we can't, we don't know the future that well anyway. We don't, we're not doing it that often right now. That's right. I mean, it's yeah, like, you know, true. right? But, but it, I mean, that awareness of we're doing this technological thing, we thought of, oh, it's a great idea. Oh, but it really messes <laughs> things up over time. Oh, we fly these jet planes in the stratosphere. Yeah, it's great. Oh, oh, but it leaves aerosols up there, which are changing the amount of light reflected from the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, <laughs> it's always something. Uh, I, it's great that we now have that awareness, at least some of us, to ask those kind of questions. Oh, if I dump this stuff out, it'll just, where is it? Oh, it'll just go in the ground, right? Where, Oh wait, that's where our drinking water came from. So, <laughs> so that's good. So maybe like two more questions, two, three more questions, and then we'll. Uh, okay, so I saw Scott first. Uh, so same. I'm going to ask both of their questions, but different. Okay. Um, <laughs> light scale. Yes. Can you envision the light scale working? Oh, sci-fi novel inspired you. What sci-fi novel inspired you? Oh, uh, for me, um, uh, gosh, well, Dune, uh, uh, I would say that was like a, because that's like a deep space novel when they, you know, with the spice and the traveling and all that, that was his solution for deep space travel. Um, 
the Foundation uh, series, um, uh, anything by Ray Bradbury, uh, the Tripod Trilogy by John Christopher, uh, anything by James Tiptree Jr., um, C.L. Moore, uh, 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 Citizen of the Galaxy by Robert Heinlein. Um, uh, I don't know, I'm blanking on everything, but a lot of stuff that I liked a lot. I read a lot of Larry Niven. Oh yeah, Larry Niven World, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the detective, he has a whole detective novel sort of series. Gil Hamilton, I oh, think, yeah, isn't okay. that? Yeah, Larry didn't read that. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'm constantly reading that. Uh, Light Skip, I just imagined that uh, somehow something happens when they sling around and light happens and uh, you just go super fast and then you're somewhere else. <laughs> that's, the, that's the Light so, Skip. So um, talk a little bit, uh, you know. Yeah. So that's the answer to the text technology yeah. question holding your feet to the fire what was the dramatic purpose could talk a little bit about what the mm -hmm. why why you had to answer that guy's question. Well, because uh, because because what, what was in it for you to well, do that? Well, because because I wanted it to be like ocean voyages of the old days, where you know it would take a few months to get somewhere. But I didn't want it to. I didn't want it to be an intergenerational spaceship. I did. I wanted the um, aliens to be able to sort of be able to have a, uh, a, a you know society that they could deal with each other, and that it was it was not too long to get some. It was long. But it wasn't too long to get somewhere. So, um, so in that way, you had to fold the the amount of time that people go from solar system to solar system because, you know, stars are far. Right. You know, it's it's interesting that we we have a reference story about that, which is this, you know, uh, age of sail traveling around the world or right. steamship traveling right. around the world, which takes weeks to months. Right. Or, or you would go on a voyage that takes a year right. or two years right. or three years and then European, come back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On and, your tour. And so we, we, in Western culture, at least have journeys of that length. And, and I think you've done a thing that's pretty common is we, we have constructed right. that, yeah. t that, that pace, that yeah. tempo into our, it, something about the scale of the human lifespan. Yeah. And cause you have to do it because you want it to make sense, but then you also need to make it like, y you need to make it actually be real. So it's like, you know, okay, so Tula starts off the book and she's 14, uh, you know, she's almost 14, and then, you know, sort of like, you know, after the first 50 pages, she's 16, 17, because time has passed, because it takes a long time for, you know, governments to, you know, move, and people to get to places, and battleships to arrive, you know, like to, you know, from one part of the galaxy to the other, so I needed to have that sort of time thing, but I didn't want it to be like, 50 years later, she's like an old lady, and like, you know, because that's not too sexy, and also, not young adult fiction, so, so maybe, uh, yeah, Damon? So is, uh, oh yeah, and Chuma. We'll end with Chuma. Is, is Gravity going to win on Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I, I loved that movie, so I'm, I'm rooting for Gravity. The, uh, um, the visual effects were amazing. Amazing. And I saw a tweet from one of the astronauts that's on oh, the yes, space so station. And he said he just watched That said it. that he's up, <laughs> sitting up on the space station <laughs> watching gravity. And what did he say? He said, he said, he said, I'm thinking of it as emergency preparedness. Yeah, or I'm thinking of it as, I'm, I'm going to bill it to training yeah. or yeah, something. Yeah, bill it to training. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Comment on a question. Uh -huh. we, we saw gravity and then saw All is Lost both in the same week that Robert Redford had to get some Oh. Yeah, I didn't see that. It's about voyages, yeah. Yep. Oh, fascinating. One's on the ocean and one's... Oh, that's fascinating. have to watch them. Space and oceans. Mm-hmm. So we'll end with Chuma. So um, I just wanted to kind of dovetail off of the, the whole the nautical theme that we have going here. I fly sailplanes and... I, I, I used I sail a lot too. I started grew up sailing and then I started doing this. And I noticed that um, the energy is basically the same. It's just the matter is in a different form. So, to me, uh, yeah. uh, my question is kind of a two-parter. One, can you extrapolate that on on a space level? Like, if you go from water to wind and gas, can, is there something? 
solar flares or electron storms or whatever that are happening in space that could act or behave in the same energetic way that it does on this planet. And two, is there a division or a department of NASA that is actually just focusing on how we can develop propulsion systems or sails or whatever it may be that can power these ships over great distances over great uh, periods of time. Well, solar sails are a little bit like that, right? Because they're trying to capture sort of the, the heat. The, yeah, of the, the energy of the, the light. Sun. Yeah, I mean, there, I, your, your question kind of raises a whole bunch of different things. In, in general, stuff in space is very easy to predict. Um, and uh, not easy to predict, but it's it it has a um, there's not that much weather. I mean, there's a thing that's called space weather, which is driven by how many solar flares the sun puts out and stuff like that. But it's not a strong effect. It's a very, very weak effect. The amount of sunlight that's coming out of the sun is pretty much constant. Gravity is, you know, knowable and modelable and very constant. So most of those effects lack something that I think is common to sailing and flying a sailplane, which is, um, you know, the wind changes changes on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, and the waves are different. And in a sailplane, every place you go, there's a little bit different lift off of this ridge or that ridge, or the wind direction's different. And, and those things are um, beautifully scaled intricacies that a human brain can like learn to process and learn to sail um, and and you know learn to to fly you know ridge lift uh, and, and that sort of stuff or oh there's probably lift over there on that parking lot I'll go fly over there um, I, I sort of feel like there's not that same sort of there's space is different in a certain kind of way. I mean, there's there's some of that, but it takes place more in our mathematical models when we engineer things. The closest thing I can think to that is there are some kind of crazy, tricky, bizarre orbits. Like you can launch from here and circle around the moon in just the right way at the right time of year and and escape from the Earth. And, and use very little fuel to do it and wander off around the Earth's orbit around the sun and go other places. So, and those things you find by doing these sophisticated simulations and stuff, but it's not quite as tangible as, as uh, you know, in this moment sailing and, and f flying a sailplane. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's lots of physics going on out there, and we, you know, are learning about how to exploit it to do different, different things. I mean, one of, the, one of the areas that there is a lot of crossover and that there's uh, a lot of uh, challenge to is landing on Mars. The atmosphere of Mars and modeling the atmosphere of Mars. Mars' atmosphere is, um, is just thick enough that it's a problem. You can't just use a lunar lander and just use rockets and land. Um, and you need the atmosphere's help to slow you down. But it's not quite thick enough to really do it with a parachute like you can only, like you can do on Earth. And so that's why Curiosity has this combination, has a parachute that goes for a while, and then we dump the parachute off and use these rockets to do the landing at the end. And, and that's the complexities of the Martian atmosphere. If it's dusty, how does it change? And that stuff is, feels more like weather at, at sea. Is, is there a division of JPL or NASA that is just focused on on propulsion systems or yes i mean there's there's various you know fields of expertise at different nasa centers that focus on different things planetary entry and modeling the mars atmosphere and how to do that sort of stuff a lot of that is done at jpl um, other centers you know specialize in how do i build a rocket engine how do i build an a, a electric propulsion you know a um, ion rocket engine and stuff like that well, I just want to say um, thank you so much for coming out uh, to my launch uh, for my book. And also, uh, for Steve, thank you so much for coming and talking Absolutely. about things that I'm so passionate about, which is space. Um, um, 
I guess Carrie can say it, but you can buy your book over there. Uh, send me onto the Virgin Galactic <laughs> spaceship. Um, uh, just, uh, just as a little, uh, a little incentive, there is actually a misprint in this first edition. So it's kind of like that Jenny uh, upside down uh, stamp. You know, if you get this one, it's misprint. you know maybe one day it'll be super valuable. Collectible. Yeah, collectible. Um, hey, so before we quit, yeah. can I just l- do this? Can I ask? Are, are there? Are there any kids here that have a question that they want to oh, ask? Oh yeah, can we just, that's a good, yeah, absolutely. Can we just kids. take a couple minutes if there's special dispensation to encourage kids to bark their questions out at us as well? Any any kids with questions? I'll I'll name you. You can you can if you <laughs> don't want to do it in front of a room full yeah, of people. Yeah, come up come and up, talk. Come yeah. up and and ask one to one. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good thing. Yeah, Steve will be up here, and he, and you can ask him questions too. And then I'm just going to announce one last little thing: is that um, so? The reason why I had anybody draw any aliens and stuff like that, I have three twenty-sided die. One of the things that uh, that I did for this book um, for Tin Star is that um, I actually created a, a True Twenty um, role-playing game mini adventure where you can interact with the characters um, in a game, and uh, it's going to be launched on Saturday. And uh, so uh, uh, if you um, if you give me one of your um, your aliens uh, and your email address, I will email you specially the um, the mini adventure uh, role playing game because uh, it's going to be awesome. Um, so that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you to Skylight Books. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.